Hello and welcome to the August instalment of The Shameless Book Club. This month we read the incredible memoir from writer Amy Bloom called In Love. In January 2020, Amy travelled to Switzerland with her husband Brian where he was helped by Dignitas to end his life after a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. The book details their love story, Brian's slow decline and Amy's doggedness in ensuring her husband died with dignity. It's a book about love, agency and grief and encourages every reader to think a lot about what it means to live and what it means to die. It was a pretty heavy one, but a really beautiful one too. And as always today, I am joined by my co-hosts, Michelle Andrews and Annabelle Lee. Hello, guys. Hello, guys. Wowee. What a book. A short book, Mm. but one with a bit to talk about. Before we jump into the episode, I do want to start with a trigger warning because, as I mentioned before, this does deal with some pretty heavy content, including euthanasia. So if this does trigger anything in you, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Now that we're ready to go and ready to talk about this beautiful book. Annabelle, I want to start with you because we always start every episode talking about the author to give a bit of context. So what did you find out about Amy Blue? She has had a very interesting career. So she is a writer and a psychotherapist. She actually started an abortion hotline for pregnant teens before starting college. And then she started acting after college, which actually sparked her interest in what she said was bothering her fellow performers off stage. So she didn't necessarily have too much fun on stage. But she got off stage and was listening to her fellow co-stars, I guess, talk about their problems. And she was like, this is what interests me. Talking ah, to people about their problems. Yes. How interesting. Yeah. So, Mish, as Annabelle said, could you tell through the book that Amy had a background in psychotherapy? I think for sure. I think you could tell that she definitely had a history as working as a counsellor. She has a master's in social work. And I think that really shone through. She clearly summed up or was very interested in why people were motivated to behave the way that they do. She was very in tune as well with the idea that what's best for one person is not going to be what's best for everyone. Yeah, she was quite an empathetic person, I felt, but we will get to like that stuff later. I think the other thing that I found completely unsurprising is when I finished the book and got to the end and there was that little bio of Amy and it said straight away that she's a professor of creative writing and I felt like only someone who can write this well and this cleanly could teach writing. Mm. Do you guys agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I also found in my research that she wrote a television show that I think she sort of hinted towards in the book called State of Mind that was released in 2007. The premise looks quite good. Did you it guys? It looks really good. It's all about like the personal lives of the therapist. Yeah, so this is the synopsis I found on Wikipedia. Oh, please. Psychiatrist Anne Bellows unexpectedly finds her husband cheating on her with their marriage counsellor. Oh. It looks like it has pretty average ratings. It was on Lifetime, I didn't want to mention this. Lifetime doesn't have the best rep for being like super great, critically acclaimed content over in the US. I really want to find this and see how I go (laughs) watching it. But I think anyone who can write TV as well, I'm impressed by. What a colourful career though. Doing that at the same time as she's been working as a clinical social worker. On and off, she's been working as a clinical social worker for 25 years. She still maintains a small practice apparently, at least if not till today. When the book was released, she was still doing this, which is such an interesting dichotomy for a career. Yeah, she does it all, clearly. And I think that a lot of her career choices stemmed from her curiosity about people and human nature. She actually gave a quote to, this is really random, I don't know where I got this from. She gave a quote to Emerson 
college magazine. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, any source is okay in book club. (laughs) She said, I think I became a therapist because I love people's stories. The things that happen or might have happened or could have happened. I think that good shrinks like good writers are more likely to be born and made than professionally trained. And if people like to think that because I'm a shrink, I understand people, that's okay. I'm not sure it's true, but it's okay. A wise woman. (laughs) A wise woman. Yeah, no, I didn't feel particularly surprised at these I guess careers were overlapping. I mean, in her personal life, Mish, I wonder if you got much else about this because she did hint towards her life before Brian, right? Yeah, and her Wikipedia says something interesting, which I couldn't quite glean. What we know for sure is that Amy has three children with her first husband. We know that they split and she entered into another relationship with someone. While in that relationship in 2005, she met Brian. They quote unquote, blew up their lives to be together and married in 2007. I don't know heaps of details. I couldn't find heaps of details about that second significant relationship in Amy's life. I gleaned that it was with a woman. Yeah, I think I read that in a Guardian interview or something in my digging somewhere. But yeah, she was very clear about, I did blow up my life I cheated we both cheated Brian had a partner too which I loved that honesty me too me I absolutely adored it because I think it would have been very easy for her to write this book and say just sort of gloss over those details to say oh I met him when I was with someone and then just not mention it again like we happened to fall in love and it was all above board she mentions at one point in the book we both behaved terribly yes absolutely there was no glossing over which I really really loved I also want to talk about the process of her writing this book because what I found really amazing is she basically started writing it the minute she got home from Switzerland. There was this passage in a feature I read that she did with the New York Times where the journal wrote, Bloom had visions of taking bed upon her return from Switzerland. Her therapist asked if this was a coping strategy she'd used before. When she admitted it wasn't, he said, I don't see that working out for you, but good luck. Mm. So Bloom got to work. She made a timeline, consulted her notebooks and started writing per Brian's instructions. By September 2020, she had a draft to share with her longtime editor. That's amazing. So it was Brian who asked her to write it. Yeah. yeah. I, I thought that was really beautiful too. That one of the first things you read when you open the book is for Brian and then the next page is a quote of his, of course, that said, please write about this. Yeah, she reiterated that in an interview with People magazine that I read where she said, Brian told me, please write about this. He wanted people to know that they have far less choice in America about their end of life than they may think. Some of us can't bear to think about it at all, but Brian felt strongly that people should have conversations and do more planning. So she's kind of living out his final wish by putting this book out into the world. Yeah, and she did it beautifully. I want to roll into what you guys loved about this book and what you thought could have been Better, Mish, I'll start with you. What was one of the biggest strengths that you found with this book? Oh, so many strengths. The pace was yes. incredible. I really, really love a writer who sees the beauty in brevity. Yes. Like I never felt like we got too much detail. I never felt like I was scanning the page number or looking for the page number, which I've referenced multiple times in this book club as the sign of a good or bad book for me. I really flew through it. I felt like she used limited words, but those words packed so much punch. Yeah, I agree. On a similar note, it was the simplicity in the way she wrote about like really nuanced experiences that 
I certainly haven't experienced. The beginning few chapters of Amy's discovery of Brian's Alzheimer's reminded me of the first part of the movie Still Alice, which yeah. I watched last night. I was oh, just, Annabelle, I was, you? I, know, I was like, I want more content about this, but it was heartbreaking. I don't know why I did that. It's a lot of sadness in one. I know. Yeah. But in that movie, when Alice says to her husband, I think I might have Alzheimer's, he's like, no. And he's in complete denial. Similarly, there's a passage in this book where Amy is saying... Brian gifted me this jumper that I should have known was the first sign, but I was kind of, I guess, in a way in denial, but she didn't spell it out like that. It was just so subtle and beautiful. She never says it outright, but it just makes you feel all the emotions. Yeah. And there were definitely parts in the book, I think, where family members knew something was wrong, but everybody just sort of existed in denial, which is like the most human thing of all. I think for me, I can't remember reading a book in book club that's almost had better writing I agree I think this was probably the the best written book for me I felt like I knew Brian and Amy so well and there was only about 200 pages in this book and we have read books with far far bigger page counts and I thought that was incredible like you read I read writing like this and I consider it like a total art form and the kind of way I wish I could write but don't think I ever will be able to because I'm just so endlessly impressed by it yeah there was something about both of them that I just trusted like some comments did catch me off guard that I couldn't quite make sense of like I know you said before Zara oh Amy reads like a really empathetic person she describes herself as a sociopath and Brian is a sociopath like jokingly but does say like we don't feel what most people feel and that's something we always joked about things like that were thrown in where I was like oh that doesn't feel like the couple that I'm reading about that doesn't quite add up with the the picture I have of you guys in my head that was a little bit confusing but largely the success of this book for me boils down in that Amy feels no need to be saccharine. What I have hated about the romance novels that we've done on this book club is they're overly sweet. They're annoyingly over the top about love. They say it in terms where I'm like, just fuck, like, come on, let's be real about it. This was so real that it was dry and it was punchy, but there was so much emotion still there. And for her to be able to balance the two, be no bullshit while being emotional was such a delicate balancing act. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah. You know how at the end of some passages when they found out a piece of information about, I don't know, Brian's Alzheimer's or whether they were accepted into Dignitas, she'd write... Brian and I turn to each other and we cry in each other's arms. It's the simplicity in that. Whereas in the romance novels we've read before, they're just so obvious about a lot of the love and adoration. Absolutely. I think for me, I totally agree with you, Mish, in that she was very honest about some of the really ugly thoughts that she had. And yet I still left the book thinking that she was a woman with a lot of empathy. I think her self-deprecation for me was one of the strongest parts. I think there is a certain level of trust I have for authors who will happily write their innermost thoughts, particularly when those thoughts are quite fallible. Mm. And the fact that she was, as we said, really happy to be open about the fact that they got together quite scandalously made me trust every other thing she said. Yes, There's a passage on page 100 Take us there, girl. I think Um, I have this written. Take us there. This is when Brian is very close to dying there at Dignitas. He's taken the antiemetic and this is what happens. The ladies wait in the back room, a kitchen I think, and after about 45 minutes they come out again. They tell us that the antiemetic has now worn off and if Brian wishes to continue, I do, he says, he will have to take it again. They say, you can take your time and I roll my eyes because of course he will. He always does, I think, as if we're in some other room on some other occasion and then I remember where I am and I'm ashamed of myself. Brian smiles lightly, what time's your plane? And I read that and I thought, 
that level of self-deprecation, like in the worst moment of your life to still acknowledge that you said something pretty dumb, I could imagine myself doing that. I could imagine being a bit snarky in that scenario because you're so overcome with overwhelm. But just as equally when I'm writing the experience, either not tell that anecdote because I've just, you know, kicked it out of my brain or glossed over it because I don't want people to take it the wrong way. Well, this is the thing. I remember one writer telling me once that the power in good storytelling is telling the truth. Tell the whole story. sticking to the truth. And I think Amy Bloom does that so well. I had the same passage down, Zara, but not that exact same sentence. Right. The one that I really loved was when she said basically that Brian spent his last moments alive not talking about their grandchildren, not talking about her, not talking about their love, not talking about the designs that he built, not talking about his love of conservation, but talking about Yale football. And I love that she included the line, I do try to not look like I'm in agony, which I am. I thought that that commitment to the truth of the moment, again, made me trust this woman so much. Because I think in life, we all think, oh, when that big moment comes, when I get, think of the big milestones, right? Like when I get married or when I have my first baby or when I am dying or when my partner's dying, it's all going to be sunshine and roses. We romanticize it. It's going to be the movie moment. Yeah. It's going to be the moment you read about in, or maybe you see in Still Alice, whatever. This book didn't do that. And it's a more difficult decision to not do that, but it's a more powerful decision to just tell the truth. Also, the way she talks about Brian and explains the kind of person Brian was when he's passed away is very truthful as well. Like she sometimes says, oh, he can be very into like the way he looks or he can be sometimes egotistical. Or aggressive when he's drunk. Yeah, exactly. And I think it can be quite hard to do that when you want to preserve their reputation and like their legacy and all of that but she's not afraid of doing that telling the truth yeah exactly I think her honesty for me across all parts of this book was pretty amazing I have a page number written down here with regards to that point and I can't remember what the section is so (laughs) shall we go there together (laughs) and just try and work out what I really wanted to talk about here it's page 148 oh this bit okay this kind of ties into my point before about her being really honest about her ugly thoughts, but thoughts that we would all have. Some of us just wouldn't acknowledge them. She said, I forgot how to go, he says, and it is his bravery in saying so, getting the directions from me and going out again that levels me. This man, this is the one that has to shuffle off this mortal coil. Every morning, as soon as Brian leaves our bedroom, I cry furiously. I mentally review all the people, not even bad people, just people I happen to know who should have to die instead of him. <sighs> I was like, I would 1000% do that. I love that we loved all the same passages. I, I know. Down as well. I no, know. I, I think it's as you said, we would all think that just so few of us would acknowledge it. And then somehow while telling these beautiful truths or these difficult truths and these emotional truths, the book is also funny in parts. Like the part on page 131 where Amy details that her and Brian are having like an argument, like they're having a fight and things have been shit. This is when Brian's perfectly healthy, by the way, which I also appreciate that the love story was not some we're a perfect couple. It was, we're a real couple, but we love each other madly. They're having this argument over days and Amy develops the belief that Brian's having an affair. And I bloody loved the response where Brian declared, I'm not having an affair. I'm just being a prick. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. Guys, I'm going to get to more of your strengths and weaknesses in a second. But first, a word from today's sponsor.
Alrighty, Annabelle, tell me what else you got because there's not a lot of structure here. I just want to know the things that you loved. There are no weaknesses in my list. I only oh my God. I loved this whole book from start to finish. I loved the way that Amy wrote about the dynamic of their relationship changing in ways I never considered. Because, like, obviously when you're a partner turned carer, things do kind of change. I've got a passage to read out. This one is on page 99. It reads, I'm not sure how any husband or wife does it. Responsively and genuinely listening to the arguments and fears, a mix of reasonable and not, and staying at all times, as instructed, gentle, kind and supportive. In the couple of years before Brian's diagnosis, our fights changed. And one of the changes was that he would complain not just about me being stubborn or bossy or a pain in the ass about precise language or fussy about clutter. But for the first time in all of our years, he complained about my tone of voice. Do not speak to me in that tone of voice, he'd say. I'm not a child. I'm not your patient. Yeah. And it would be so hard, like watching the person you love change in all of these ways and feeling like you want to be gentle and talk to them, I guess, kind of like a child, but he's perceptive of all of that. And it does change the dynamic in ways that are just like so big and huge. So profound. Yeah. Well, I remember reading that thinking that there are other parts sort of similar to that anecdote, Annabelle, where she would say they would be in an argument. And she would say something kind of petty at the end and she would say, I don't know why I said that because it's not gaining anything. Mm. And I was like, I would fucking do that. Yeah. I would. I'd be at the end of my tether and I'd say something petty even though it doesn't help the scenario or it goes over his head or it just it increases tension. Like mm. it's net negative all round, but I would still do that. I'm glad that you raised that passage, Annabelle, as well. When I was reading the Goodreads review, the Goodreads website has been updated, by the way. You can click on the star rating and read the reviews that gave it one star. Oh, right. And so overwhelmingly, this was reviewed really positively by Goodreads viewers. It got a 4.3 out of 5 after thousands of reviews. How can someone give this a one star? Well, the main critique, so glad you are, Sarah, is that Amy was a cold hearted carer and that if she was caring for her husband she should have been more like love filled and more understanding and more empathetic and passages like the one you just read mm. depicted her in a cold or harsh light and I just completely disagree I think some of those readers really overlooked a really important point in the book so often carers end up being women it ends up being the mother the daughter the sister the wife and we are just expected to do that. So rarely are men expected to be the carer. I would also encourage anyone who believes that or thinks that after reading the book, go look up the stats on terminally ill people and how many male partners leave their female partners compared to vice versa. It is a completely fascinating study that you can find online. I think Amy Bloom shone a light on something that's really important. Women are expected to do this. It is kind of lumped into the expected domesticated work that we are kind of just culturally ingrained that is our job and that we should do so willingly and so emphatically when the reality of the situation is this diagnosis and this condition completely altered Amy Bloom's life as well as Brian Amesh's. I think for me one thing that those reviewers are clearly ignoring is that love languages come in like many different forms and this is a woman who took leave from her job to try and work out how she could get her husband to Switzerland so that he could die how he wanted to. Like the mental load of doing that is beyond anything I can possibly comprehend. Like that is the ultimate act of caring and love for me. Yeah and it's really unrealistic to think that a part partner turned carer isn't going to go through this period of time where they're trying to figure it out and yeah. feel all those emotions like frustration, anger, even sadness. Like they're not going to be this perfect carer from the get-go. Also, you're not a doormat. Exactly. That's the other thing. Like you have 
a backbone too and have needs as well. For like sure. when you care, you don't give up every single part of yourself to make that happen. And this is a deteriorating condition, right? Like mm. this did begin with maybe him commenting on the tone of her voice and her being completely confused and baffled as to why that was happening. It's so flattening to hear that anecdote and go, oh my God, how cold hearted of her. She didn't actually know he had Alzheimer's when he was commenting on the tone of her voice. Like yeah. for her to point out that that was really unusual to navigate and that they were fighting more than usual and they were having all these issues of course they were they didn't know he had Alzheimer's like it's completely losing the context yeah I agree with that I think the other point in the book that I really liked that made me think that in many ways Amy was actually a better person than I was when she spoke about Brian's memorial and being there and she firstly spoke about how she noticed her editor in the pews and her editor had lost her own husband a couple of years before and her first thought was god I don't think I did enough for her like I don't think I asked enough and then she said this I doubt I asked her more than twice about how she was doing I know I did and said the stupid things that people do and say and I am resolved not to mind what anyone says today no matter what and there are some doozies which I find cheering even in the moment of receiving them Many people remind me that he was too young, that it was unexpected, that they never knew he had Alzheimer's, that he surely had some good years left and that I must be devastated. One person tells me that some days I will feel pretty good and other days I'll want to die, really die, she says. Mm. I thought, even if I felt like, if I put myself in this scenario, even if I looked at someone and thought, God, I don't think I did enough for you, I would still get annoyed at people on that day of my partner's passing saying dumb things. But her being able to extend to be like, well, I haven't been perfect here, so I am not going to hold people to a different standard. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think one small other thing that I loved about Amy that really made me just, I don't know, almost be a fan of her was – She didn't let, and Brian didn't let actually as a couple, they did not let other people's opinions dictate how they feel about things. Like on page 20, she gave a really quick example about her tarot card reader. And I want to read it out because Annabelle, I'm curious what you think about this as well. She goes, I think of Susie Chang, my eminently sensible tarot card reader. And if you think that's absurd to find comfort in tarot, I've got no argument for you. (laughs) I love that she just has the ability to go, I don't care if you think I'm dumb. I don't care if you think I'm an idiot. I don't care if you think I'm woo-woo. I have no interest in trying to please you or trying to warm to you. Yeah, that is so not me. I like so care about what other people think. Yeah, that's why I wanted your thoughts because we would not do that. Yeah, exactly. And that's why even though she does shine a light on all of her shittier qualities, that's why I thought throughout this whole book that she was a good person because she really had a strong sense of self and she really knew what she was doing and I really admired that. Another strength I have written down is just so obvious but I loved Brian and Amy specifically this passage which Brian says to Amy you should be with a guy who doesn't mind that you're smarter than he is who doesn't mind that most of the time you'll be the main event. I don't know if I can be that guy but I'd like a shot and then like a few passages later it's like we married. Yeah yes. (laughs) And it's so beautiful. That was early on wasn't it? And I thought she really didn't need to say much. Like she could skip years and decades literally here and just get straight to the point. Can I have a quick moment before I talk about like the one tiny weakness that I had about Yvonne, the mother-in-law or Ryan's mother. I thought she was one of the great heroes of this book. This woman in her mid-80s who was just such an unlikely ally in this scenario. I want to read out a passage from the book. It starts on page 180 where Amy actually talks about the first time she met Yvonne and then rolls into telling her about their decision. As I was arriving to meet Yvonne for the first time, Brian, not even divorced from his first wife, decided to give his mother all the bad news at once, an hour before I showed up. Three kids, divorced, 
Korea, Jewish and bisexual. She didn't bat an eye. After our first dinner together, she patted my hand and went to the kitchen to call his siblings and basically said, get on board with this. And then there's sort of like a paragraph break. I sit on the bed beside her and tell her our plan with Dignitas. She pulls away from me and wipes her eyes and I wait with my hands clasped. I don't want a scene, but if there is one, I want it to happen while Brian is still asleep. Then she says, I am so relieved. I realized that last night. I was praying about this and praying all night and I realized that what I prayed for was that he would not have to suffer as Joanne does. I am shocked that I'm so relieved, but I am. Mm. I honestly, again, can't fathom a woman in her 80s who is incredibly religious looking at her son who is going to die before her and, and thinks to herself and says out loud, yes, this is the best plan. Like the level of empathy, compassion, progressiveness that that takes is beyond anything. I can't as like a 24-year-old, of course I'm very for assisted dying, but I can't put myself in that position yeah. and say that I would respond the same way. I totally agree. I think it was the best friend experience yes, though, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, this, this elderly woman had watched her glamorous. The, the word glamorous was repeatedly yeah. used to describe her best friend. And I think when you see someone with that much life – become that lifeless because of their condition. I don't know how you would feel any other way, truthfully. And she was such a – just an incredible character in this book. Well, even when Amy spoke after Brian had died and mentioned that every time she spoke or saw Yvonne after that, that she never felt like Yvonne centred her own grief in those conversations. And I was like, I don't know how you do that if it's your kid. Yeah. If it's your son, like no matter how old they are or how old you are, it's like your grief would feel like the centre of the world. But to have that level of self-awareness to be thinking to yourself and knowing, well, no, this is his wife and she needs to be the centre is amazing. Oh, it makes me emotional. I feel I emotional just talking about it. Um, You have a weakness. I also have a quick weakness. I wonder I have, if it's the same. I have one or two, but I don't know if this is because of how I read the book. I read this kind of over the course of the month. I picked it up and put it back down. And because I read it over too long of a time and not really over the course of a few days, I did find myself getting confused by timelines. No, I agree. That was really? my weakness. I felt like some details, like for example, the Dignitas I don't know if it's Dignitas or Dignitas but the Dignitas worker was referred to as S early on in the book and then later on we learned oh actually first of all she went by a, a different name a fa- like a fake name and then yeah. she became S and it was kind of little things like that where I thought that could have just been glossed over a little bit like yeah. the timeline did become confusing then and I had that experience reading it within three okay. days because so I wasn't, wasn't you I wasn't sure if it was me and because I think the other thing is sometimes at the start of the book we were told details you know, like a neurologist wrote a really unhelpful report saying that Brian was experiencing depressive episode and that anecdote came back up. And I was like, oh, is this the same neurologist? Was I just given a preview of this? It felt like some things were copied. Like I yeah. felt like, oh, I thought I'd already read almost exactly that to the exact same level of detail a hundred pages ago. The only other thing I would say um, is sometimes with the writing, she would have little tangents, often in parentheses, which were, were often very funny, but I thought there were too many because I was like, I love the odd tangent, but sometimes I'm getting way too much context in tangents and I just want to stay on narrative. Sometimes it was a paragraph in brackets yes, and I right. lost track of the sentence where I was like, okay, so let me just read this paragraph in the parentheses as a standalone and then I'll go back and read the start and the end of the sentence. Yes. Did you yeah. find that? 
I love a sidebar. Yeah, <laughs> but I, love I that. get that it could confuse you from like the main story. I just I can't fault this book. Hey, and no one's forcing you. <laughs> and I love that you can't fault it. Should we talk about briefly before we give our ratings assisted suicide and kind of how we felt when we closed the cover? Yeah, Annabelle, I want to ask you first as well, because you already touched on this saying, you know, if I put myself in this scenario, like theoretically I can feel one thing, but I don't know how I would feel if it was my own experience. Yeah, I think it's exactly that. Like my overriding thought was one that aligned with what Amy said to Wayne, great Wayne on page 170. Oh yeah. I had this written down too. Is this how she explained? Yes. The argument. You're holding the book upside down. (laughs) I was like, explain. uh, Yeah. Explained why Brian wanted to do this. It reads, I say, if you think that a long life is of great value, just because it is our own time here on earth or because you appreciate what God has allotted you or because there might be the possibility of treatment or cure or whatever ails you within your lifetime, if only the lifetime is long enough, your view will be different than mine. If you are the kind of person who sees death as the enemy and continued life itself as a victory, no matter how lonely, painful or disabled your life might be, who feels that a quality of life is only one slim tree in a big forest one arguable virtue in the big battle, your view is different than mine and different than Brian's. And I like wholeheartedly agree with that. I think I was just inserting myself into a lot of this and feeling confused because I've never gone through anything like this, being the partner to someone who wants to end their life. I was like, I would feel more emotional than it seems like Amy was. She just seemed so straightforward about it in some moments. I think, have you, I wonder if this story is more straightforward if you've seen someone in your life disintegrate mm. with someone something like Alzheimer's or dementia. Because I think once you see that experience, you really do feel like both options are awful. But one is in this case worse than the other. One's and, more humane. Yeah. And and I in my opinion, the worst thing for Brian was to literally disintegrate in front of the people that he loves. Yeah. I've seen someone incredibly important to me. They've passed away now, but they weren't the person that they always were or that I knew them to be when I was growing up by the time that they died. And I have no doubt in my mind, I know listeners might disagree with me, the more humane and the least cruel option is to let that person at least have power over how they leave the world. Just decide. Yeah, decide for themselves. I want to read two passages about this that I thought really summed it up really beautifully as well. On page 24, Amy summed up Brian's reasons for choosing to end his life and it read, I don't want to end my life, but I'd rather end it while I am still myself rather than becoming less and less of a person. I also thought one of the most powerful heart-wrenching anecdotes about why people should have a right to end their life in the way that they choose was actually not from Brian. It was from their old couples therapist, Rachel. I want to read it out. I encourage her again to talk to her daughters about her concerns and I know that everything I'm saying is pointless. Finally, I ask for her daughter's phone numbers and Rachel cannot or will not give the numbers to me. She winds up in the care of one of her daughters and she does not get to Dignitas because that window closed two years earlier and she will spend the rest of her life in a memory care unit and the best outcome I can hope for is that she dies soon. She does not die very soon and when we talk next, she is in the memory care unit and she says, something very strange is going on here, please come get me. It's so sad. Like, it's so, so sad. And I think when you hear stories like that of people who wanted a dignified way to die, it shone a real light for me on how much perhaps I don't know about this space. I thought I was actually pretty well educated on euthanasia and right to die legislation. But then I thought, how much do I really know beyond the places that have it legalised and the places that don't? And even with that in mind, we knew with America that even some places that have it legalized make it almost impossible for you to jump through the hoops to make it 
happen. I also think for me, a huge part of this book was how it's not fair, like that there are people like Rachel who who want a dignified way to die and there are people like Brian and it worked out for Brian because of timing. It also worked out because of support. An he, advocate. Yeah. He had someone like Amy and Amy had people like her sister Ellen and her kids and Kay who flew to Switzerland and flew home with her. She had her daughter meet her at the airport. She had her other daughter meet her at home. Like without all of those people, I don't know if any of this could happen. Yeah, I agree. I think as well when you see someone deteriorate from – a condition like Alzheimer's, you see how confusion and fear are imbued in every experience of yeah. life at the end. And I just do not think it is humane to make anyone feel that confused and that fearful about their own existence and to get to the point where they cannot make any sense of any of the people they love or anything going on around them. Yeah, I mean, so long as like that's what they wanted. Like if people oh, want that. Sure. Yeah. I think I'm speaking from the perspective of someone who loves someone who would have chose what yeah. Brian chose and wasn't given that opportunity. I also have someone in my life who had similar experience and I don't know if they would have chosen that, you know, with the yeah. kind of beliefs that they had. So I think it, it is complicated, but I think the baseline should be giving people the power to make that decision when so many people don't. I think it's time for our ratings. Yes. I have a sense of how this is going. First and foremost, no one-star reviews. <laughs> we ragged on everybody else for giving me a one-star. Annabelle Lee, I will start with you. Unsurprisingly, I'm going for a five. Yeah, I love that. Even though if I was taking into consideration how sad this book made me, I would I would give it like a four. But no, it was perfection in my eyes, a five. I love that. Michelle, crying story therapeutic, Annabelle Lee. I think the more tears, the higher the rating for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't get to mention it in this episode, but finishing on the vows and the wedding. Oh, huge. A masterstroke, like a masterstroke in storytelling and fucking ruined me emotionally. Like playing Mozart at a funeral or something, like oh, guaranteed to cry. A five. Is that a thing? <laughs> Mozart at a funeral? We were like, we're all like, yeah. yeah. Like, I heard you say that. And I was like, I don't think Mozart yeah. would make me cry, but a funeral would. Yeah. Um, a five. I nice. think this is one of the most important books I've read. It's one of the best written books I've ever read as well. And finishing on those vows to each other I would try and read them out but I will literally not get through the first sentence oh I just think it is such a gorgeous gorgeous book I think it's absolutely the book to give people who don't know where they sit Mm. on this kind of subject because I think this story like someone's very personal story that would have taken so much energy out of Amy to put down to paper is just very worth telling in the context of of these very political conversations I will give it a four and a half. Sorry to not keep the. Why does flow. that feel like a one when we've got two fives and someone goes four and a half? We're like, just because you. I didn't speed through it. And for me, like yeah. my perspective of a great book is something that I just pick up and don't want to put down. And I did. I read this over a really long time. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was beautiful. I thought the writing was amazing. Mm. But I did find myself getting confused from time to time. And I can't ignore that. A five has to be one that you inhale. I inhaled it. Annabelle inhaled it. So fine that you took yeah. short breaths. <laughs> Next month, we will be reading Black Cake by Charmaine Wilkerson. Here's a bit from the blurb. In this moving debut, two estranged siblings deal with their mother's death and her hidden past, a journey of discovery that takes them from the Caribbean to London to California and ends with her famous black cake. We cannot wait to read along with you, so we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Seamless Media. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.